A lot of people think the naval service just arrived and people waved a wand and we had all the equipment we needed, but in fact, little appreciated that the naval service was really a hostilities-only effort uh, set up to comply with the Hague Conventions on Neutrality. As usual, in in matters maritime in Ireland, all the paperwork had been done, but nobody had thought of the wherewithal to implement the paperwork. Now, we declared a neutrality. We had nothing whatsoever to defend it. A neutrality of not defended goes by default. Apart from that, too, you have um, religi- uh, new- neutrals have certain responsibilities. They must control certain areas. They must control their ports. They must control the waters, the territorial seas. They must control the entry and exit of um, belligerent ships and so on. So the naval service just had to come into being. There was no preparation. There had been a preparation in 19, early 1939 for a marine and coast watching service, but that was really on the coast watching side. Very little had been done on the, mari- on the marine side at all. So that when war was declared on the 3rd of September 1939, the only one thing to do was to rush around and get a crowd of people, of whom I was one, from the merchant service, uh, from the fishing fleets, from port, con- uh, port authorities, yachtsmen, and uh, set to and set up a naval service. Um, we were all, in the early days, I suppose, master mariners or chief engineers. Uh, we knew how to run ships, but we didn't know how to fire guns. We had to learn that one by guessing by God. And um, the next thing, of course, having got the few people in, where were you going to get the equipment? Well, what equipment did we got? In the early days, we had nothing whatsoever. The first vessels of the Naval Service really belonged to the Air Corps. They had a seaplane tender, a refueler, a target boat, and um, what we used to call the Naval Service the Flying Flea, a small, fast little skimmer. And they were taken over from the Air Corps, and given the job of setting up port control in um, Dublin in the winter of 1939. It must have been pretty grim out in that weather. Um, then <clears throat> the Merku, the older people will remember the Merku from Dublin Opinion, kept him in humorous articles for a long, long time. Uh, she was taken over from the Department of Fisheries and commissioned and a vessel they had called the Fort Rannock, which was uh, hired from a Scottish company for fishery protection. She was bought in and transferred to the Naval Service. There was a famous vessel called uh, uh, the the Mine Planter Shark. She was a very, very old iron ship, and she was bought over down in Cork and given, as I say, the title of Mine Planter. Well, I remember being asked by the duty officer in GHQ who planted the mine on the way to on the way to Dublin when I reported she was on her way, and um, we had a three-masted schooner, believe it or not, as a training ship, a vessel called the Isolt. Now, <clears throat> with that, uh, the very beginning, that's all we had to struggle along with. Commodore Thomas McKenna, who commanded the Irish Naval Service for seventeen years, Ted Murphy of Holbolan also remembered the early days. I remember the Murku, the Rannoch, the Shark was bought from a firm in Ringeskiddy, Parma Brothers. She was a little cargo boat, and they used her as such for transporting stores. Hall then, of course, was an island, not like it is now. Everything had to be done by boat and all the stores, and the Shark was used for that. 
the Murakou and Rannoch had been fishery protection vessels and so were armed and they were taken over straight as such. And those three ships with the six MTBs, which they got, they got them in three and three, MTBs one, two and three, and then four, five and six, formed the, the Navy, I suppose you might say, during the emergency as was to us, Second World War. Chief Petty Officer Rory McCarthy joined the forces in 1942. Beginning with the Morocco, of course, the famous old Helga that was. She shall Liberty Hall in the old days. And the Fort Rannoch, Shark, and a schooner called the Ice Halt, which was Skibbereen registered. And the Naval Service, then as now, was based at Hall Bolin in Cork Harbour. Well, Hall Bolin was constructed before the turn of the century as a naval base and uh, developed... The dry dock was, was found to be too small in its original dimension and it was extended, which, and the extension was open in 1896. And uh, it reached its peak as a naval dockyard during the First World War, when it was a prime base for the ships operating in the Western Ocean. It was based on Portsmouth, but Portsmouth was like Shannon Airport. It's a sort of a hodgepodge it developed from a small building. But Holborn was laid out as a complete constructed model dockyard and everything was in the correct place and everything was right. Around about 1923, they handed over Holborn to the state and the state, the Office of Public Works, took the dockyard over and hoped to work it as a viable commercial dockyard. But being the 20s and leading on to the recession of the 30s, that just didn't function. And in 1928, they abandoned the idea of that and they just let a maintenance party here to look after the buildings and places. So there were 12 of them left. They called them 12 apostles. The dominating feature of the 30s was, was happened in 1929, if I may say so, was the Celtic, the White Star Liner, 28,000-tonne White Star Liner, going on the rocks at Roaches Point. And in the early 30s, a Danish firm, Peterson and Albeck, came over to break up that liner and they were given Holborn as a base for their activities. And in the meantime, in 1932, the government had decided to sell all the machinery of the dockyard, thus eliminating it in the future as a dockyard. And they let this Danish firm have Holborn as a base for the breaking up of the ship. They brought in the ship in sections, and they just dropped it anywhere and everywhere. And it was the beginning of the end, really, for Holborn as a dockyard. They mutilated all the buildings and everything. The 30s, as you know, was a time of heavy recession and it was the ship, as a shipbreaking centre then that Holborn was. And it was full of scrap iron everywhere. And suddenly, around 39, after the outbreak of war, we heard that the Irish Naval Service was to be formed. And the first we saw of that was uh, an army detachment of people who were to be the Corps of train, Training Personnel. They arrived together with the Corps of Engineers who were going to reconstruct buildings which were up to then used as stores, reconstruct buildings as billets and accommodation for the newly formed Naval Service. And uh, the first I really saw of, of the Naval Service as such was on a Sunday afternoon in summertime looking out from Cove to see a motor torpedo boat, MTB M1, up the, the channel and into the basin and that was the first of the real navy that I met as such 
Ted Murphy. Tim Ferreter, a retired warrant officer, remembers those MTBs well. They had two torpedoes, four depth charges and a machine gun. And that was our Navy for a while. And eventually they got three more torpedo boats, M5, M6, M4, M5, M6, sorry, you know. So we had a flotilla of six. But how good a boat was the MTB? They were strong, they were strong. They were good enough. They were good. They could take a good, fairly hefty sea too. I was out in fairly hefty seas in them. You know, and I, I know they could. You had to slow them down, of course, you see. I mean, if you didn't, you know, they'd, they'd be sliding off from sea to sea, like, you know. But they could take, they could take the weather, you know. So they could they get, do about 30 knots or over 30 knots. You know, four engines, four engines on each boat. And I'm told they were about 600 horsepower each, those engines. You can imagine the petrol they fairly consumed. As the years went on, there were additions to the naval establishment, but the young service lived dangerously and several times nearly expired. At the end of the war, we were really reduced to practically nothing. We nearly had gone out. And a lot of people don't realise that this was the second Navy nearly going out. There was another one in 1922 which did go out after ten months. And uh, the question was, what are we going to get, apart from the money end of it altogether? And we found that the British were selling the corvettes which were used on the Atlantic patrol during the war. They had no use for life for them any longer, and they started to sell them off. And we bought three of them. Now, corvettes, we got them very cheaply. As a matter of fact, I think we got them for a song, really. But corvettes are not naval ships. They were designed for Atlantic patrol, the wonderful sea boats and all that sort of thing, but you couldn't turn them into naval ships, but that's all we had to all we had to work with. And their principal job when we took them over uh, was fishery protection. And at that they served us very well. They had four inch guns, um, they had old steam boilers, triple expansion and all that sort of thing. But we one could never regard them as naval ships, but we had to soldier on with those ships for quite a few years. As a matter of fact, they were getting into such a state in 1969-1970 uh, that um, they were really uh, getting unseaworthy and we had to put them out of commission and we nearly came to the very end of our days again. As a matter of fact, it, it's on record that for one period of 24 hours the Naval Service hadn't got a ship at all just a few men and no ships because the last corvette was put out of commission on the 31st of December and we didn't take over the next minesweeper from the RN until the 1st of January so in fact I was commanding officer of a naval service without a ship for one day. In recent years the naval service has been expanding steadily and Captain Wally Maloney the officer commanding Hall Bolan told me that this trend is continuing. We've recently had a new establishment which um, greatly increased the numbers. We are building up to these uh, numbers, but it's a slow process. It's, uh, you must train people as you go along. You must build a base in which to train them. Um, but we are slowly building up to it. When I visited the naval base recently, some of the ships were engaged on a training exercise. They were simulating real-life situations. 
and sometimes simulation becomes reality. A crew member was injured and plans were rapidly changed. Request MO and ambulance meet us on arrival. Over. TSB to Cove Roads with medical purse to RV ETA zero one eleven thirty Alpha over. proceeding at max speed into the harbour now and uh, there's a vessel coming down, one of our own transport launches coming down to rendezvous with us. We should meet him somewhere around the spit. Uh, the man happily, um, he's an injured hand, uh, two of his fingers are, are rather sore to put it mildly, but however he can walk and we'll transfer him to the, the launch uh, where of course there's an ambulance waiting ashore in Hall Bowl and he'll be taken up to the hospital in Collins Barracks and uh, we hope to see him again in a couple of days. He's mad keen to get back to us. <laughs> well, do we rejoin the operation today then again or what happens after that? Yes, uh, once we have the man landed, which I hope shouldn't take much longer than say another 15 minutes, we'll um, uh, reverse course and go back and join the other ships on exercise. Can you give me, can you give me an idea of what's involved in the operation today now? You have five ships at sea. We have five ships at sea, and uh, we're doing various exercises. The type of exercise, I suppose, that we could we do in actuality um, when we're on patrol, um, manoeuvring together as a fleet. Uh, then uh, also we'll do a gunnery uh, shoot. We will do um, a boarding. That is, we'll do an aggressive boarding in the sense that um, we will board on the assumption that we were boarding somebody who was trying to oppose us. In that the uh, the boarding party will be armed. Uh, this, of course, is normal in that uh, vessels or trawlers always submit or almost invariably submit without us having to use uh, weapons. However, um, we're going through the normal sort of day-to-day uh, -day exercise to demonstrate both to the flag officer and his staff uh, our efficiency and to you gentlemen of the, of the Fourth Estate. With the injured man safely ashore, our ship put about to rejoin the exercise and once on station, it was all go. Control. 
Gophers test firing mechanism. And as the exercise developed, the guns were stripped for action. Yankee Victor and Yankee X-Ray, this is a Yankee Mike, emergency three, emergency three, over. Yankee X-Ray, Yankee Victor, Roger. Bovers and Starward can engage. I am the leading gunner on the ship, the Aoife, and um, yeah, it's up to me to keep all the guns working at all times, more or less, and uh, if there are any faults, I'm supposed to know how to deal with them, etc, etc, you know, but um, the shoot today went off fairly well, and uh, well, the weather wasn't too good. What's involved in the training of a gunner, could you tell me? The different courses there are are um, a basic gunnery course, an SG3 and an SG2. Now, I've gone as far as an SG2. Now, my next course will be an SG1. That's for promotion. And um, it's there four to five-week courses all the time, and they're held in Hull Boland, not at sea. Fortunately, gunnery is not often called for in the day-to-day life of the Naval Service. Fishery protection, the main peacetime activity, is usually uneventful. Uh, we keep a visual lookout and a radar lookout. And um, when a contact has been made, we usually get its bearing and its distance. And we approach towards it. And um, when we establish that it's fishing, if there's a foreigner, well, then uh, one of our radio men here go over, or the officer, boarding officer goes over with a radio and a board installer. And they tell him that he is to be arrested if he is to be arrested and um, they send back the details to us here in the radio room and we in turn then it's made into what's known as farmer signals and we in turn send them off to our base station which usually informs the guards and customs and that sort of thing and uh, we proceed into port we also might have to work through maybe a coast radio station civilian coast radio station for the purpose of arranging pilots usually for the trawlers and sometimes for ourselves well, do you find that your success rate is higher? Could you give me an idea of how successful your capture rate is? Well, in the last patrol we did, a two-week patrol, uh, we caught five Spanish trawlers in that two weeks. And, um, well, I mean, I suppose we could catch more if we had more vessels, but we have a lot of ocean to cover, 200 miles of it, and uh, there's a limited amount of men on board, and it's not always possible to pull in as many as we would like to. Weekly, the whole coast is covered so that we know what vessels are in our waters and we can get to an area very rapidly. Um, in addition to that, uh, we find that the bigger uh, vessels no longer are prepared to take the risks. Their governments are party to uh, agreements and we find now that... Uh, most of the countries involved want their fishermen to respect those agreements and even if we are unable to arrest them, if we're unable to get to them in time, provided we have their names and numbers which the aircraft can give, uh, we can ensure uh, that a report goes back to the home country or to the EEC and uh, 
this in turn means that licenses are revoked or that uh, action is taken against the skipper in his home uh, country. There are critics who feel that the Naval Service does not fulfil its fishing protection role adequately. Mick Orpin from Castletown Bear is skipper of an 80-foot deep-sea trawler. I don't really blame the, you know, the Navy as such. They must be going in uh, the department's orders. Like, if uh, you take the Celtic Sea, for instance, if, uh, if the closure was as it have been in the North Sea, whereas that uh, you've got no foreign trawlers of any description, no big boats, or no small boats. When the closure was made, it was a complete closure. Whereas the situation in the Celtic Sea is that the foreigners are be able to fish at will, and I have no doubt in my mind that the Navy know that and the department knows it. And uh, their own Irish vessels are being hampered, uh, you know, a great extent so that uh, there's bound to be uh, animosity creeping between you know the various groups of fishermen uh, uh, towards the navy the naval service also has a role in relation to inshore fishing drift net fishing for salmon it's a role that is unpopular both with the navy and the fishermen obviously we would prefer not to have to confront our own uh, fishermen in any area uh, we have had a very fine relationship down through the years with our fishermen around the coasts. So that, uh, obviously, to repeat, we would not, we prefer not to uh, have to confront our salmon fishermen anywhere. Uh, but this is a function we've been given, and uh, we would like to think that it's in the interest of the fishermen themselves. Uh, that the regulations are designed to conserve the stocks so that future generations, maybe their own sons, will in their time have fish to catch. Is the Naval Service then the right agency for monitoring inshore fishing? There are conservatives there uh, for this job and uh, we also believe that a great deal of this work could be done from the shore side in that... uh, the boats land the fish every night or every morning and the nets they use are illegal and they must be landed also at some stage and that uh, we feel that a lot of the work could be done from the shore side. Well, as for the Navy, the Navy aren't to blame. It's the department we are to blame. We have no, we have no grudge against the Navy as man-to-man. We have a grudge against the department for the ways they're using the Navy to their own ends and not to the ends the Navy were originated for. They have a couple of boats, two for definite, on the inshoremen where they could be better used, maybe keeping French, Spanners, Dutch, you name it, that's invading our waters, keep them uh, in their rightful place. In the knowledge that the Naval Service is working under orders, do local people then accept them? No way. No way are they accepted. Uh, we feel very strongly about them here in this town of Castleton Bear. We feel very strongly about them, and they are, what I would say, blacked in the, in the pubs and all social life in, in, this, in this town. And uh, it's a very sad state of affairs. Because, I mean, when they're out 
and maybe it's been three or four days old. I would have to come in and stay at anchor and can't come ashore for um, a bit of social life. It's very sad. John Joe Harrington of the Inshore Fishermen's Association in Castletown Bear. The crews of the fishery protection vessels have mixed feelings about their job. It's a good, healthy life. Um, you couldn't ask for better there, but of course every job has its ups and downs, you know. Um, Tell me about some of the ups and indeed some of the downs as well in the Navy. Well, the ups are the good times and the downs are the bad weather. <laughs> That's the way to look at it. Um, oh, you have a good crack you know, around the coast if you have a good crew on board, and usually you do have. Um, the downs are, you could put it like, um, bad weather is one that plays a big part, you know. How often, for example, are you at sea and away from your wife and family? Uh, you would do three weeks out, ten days in, three weeks out, ten days in, continuously. Do you find this upsets the, your social life? Well, yeah, naturally enough it does, but uh, you get used to it after a while, you know. In general, it's not bad. It, it Naturally, anybody who goes to sea for a living, it has its drawbacks with one's family and social life, naturally enough. You, you find that if you're looking for a job which gives you plenty of time off and a good social life and a bit of freedom to get around, forget it because you, you just won't do it. But I feel it does offer a, a great deal of variety and interest that there's something, things are happening. You feel that you're doing something constructive, if you like. Particularly, I find that on, on ships. And um, the drawbacks as I say in the social life are probably the, the biggest snag with it but it's it's a fact of life unfortunately you just have to learn to live with and by now thankfully as it most of us have come to terms with it you know the majority on this ship it, uh, the senior rates aboard would be what I would call career men we're we're here and uh, you know we, we will come to terms with this and plan our and organize our lives around it accordingly but living at such close quarters, do the men get on well together? Yes, very much so. I mean, they stick together, they stand up for one another. There's, there's a lot of rivalry between different ships' companies, but this is good-natured rivalry. It's a pride in the appearance, their own appearance and the ship's appearance. How would they actually show that? Can you give me an example of it? Well, when you see two ships tied alongside, you'll see the lads. They'll scrub up. You don't really have to... Normally, you have to get the lads to clean up for rounds at night you don't have to chase them as much in fact that they're inclined to scrub up a lot more willingly for evening rounds when they know there's another ship alongside them and people will be comparing notes another example was the annual inspection there's a great sense of pride in this ship at the moment now because we were told the lads were having sneak previews of the other ships and having a look and saying oh we're better, we're better all it takes another few hours work and they really stood up for themselves, sacrificed a lot of their own time and sleep just to get the ship up to standard for this general inspection. You'd have a certain amount of sabotage going on as well, would you? I wouldn't call it sabotage. Thanks, sort of, uh, sort of good-natured fun. Not sabotage as such. Like what? Stealing fenders, deck scrubbers, cans of brasso are on, like on the black market. Um, deck scrubbers, mops, rags good commodities if you can get your hands on them What exactly would you do with them? Use them yourself or hide them just so that someone else can't use them Well today in the service life is 
really easy. Of course, we still have our discipline and rules and regulations and all that, but conformity is the main thing, and if a man conforms, he has a nice time. Pay is good. Excellent, actually, for younger men nowadays. Food is top class. Accommodation is also top class. Only it's rather limited in Hall Walden now with the number of recruits we're getting in. We have room for expansion in that quarter. But conditions generally have improved uh, 2,000%, I would say, since my younger days. Is there rivalry between the Navy and the Army? And is the Naval Service regarded as being the poor relation to the Army? Not to the extent it was, no. Not by no means. Um, back in the 60s, we undoubtedly were, but I think we've, we've come out of that situation considerably in the last... 10 years particularly since the advent of newer vessels, the minesweepers and subsequently the patrol vessels it meant that our equipment now that we're operating with is absolutely as good as you'll get anywhere, we're, we're definitely second to none and it's particularly since the advent of building our own ships made the big difference when we were buying ships from other people you never quite seemed to get what you wanted, you we're always trying to modify or alter somebody else's gear to your own purposes. But now that we're building our own here, it means you are getting a custom-built vessel and we are getting satisfaction. Do you have difficulty in manning the modern equipment that you're getting on these new vessels now? We haven't had so far. That Naturally, technology is becoming more complex by the day and uh, you've got to keep up with it. And the fact that we're still effectively a small service, you know, talking of 700 men, it means that most of the technicians in the place have to be something of a jack-of-all-trades because their, their equipment is, as I said, getting extremely complex. But we haven't had any problems with maintenance so that they've kept up extremely well. And since this situation is likely to continue with equipment getting even more complicated, I'd have no reason to believe that they standard of maintenance and operation of this equipment will not continue as good as it's done in the past. Yeah, this vessel, Emer, was built in around 1978. Her predecessor, Deirdre, built in about 1972, was a prototype of um, a completely Irish-designed vessel with um, representatives from Irish shipping consultants, consultants from Irish shipping um, in working in the background in the actual design of the hull and the general layout of the ship. Emer, as I said, was launched in 78 and has uh, improved remarkably on the actual design of Deirdre. Since then, we've had two patrol vessels, Aoife and Ashling, completing this actual design. The number we have at the moment now is four. They've, they're completely Irish-built, completely designed in Ireland, and the workmanship is all Irish built in Verome dockyards, just in fact around the corner here. They have been acclaimed abroad, this one in particular was um, at a joint patrol vessel get-together, if you like, um, in Kiel, and there she was acclaimed as one of the best, best vessels there. And not just by the actual um, other navies there, but all the inspecting staff felt Emer here was, let's say, the future patrol vessel of the small navies like us. And as her, with regards to her role for fishery protection, that you can see that she's quite comfortable and uh, well suited to her role for long periods at sea. As designs evolve, the wishes of the people who are to sail the ships are considered. Exactly, yes. You know, the people who were actually at afloat were asked the question, "What 
accommodation would they prefer, which accommodation would they prefer, and um, there is undecided views. But um, yes, in general, with the things that affect the men, they're given the the chance to put their point of view across. How strong is naval discipline? You can't afford any slip-ups because simply everybody, he must do his particular job, you know. And if one person falls down, then the whole linkage is broken and it means trying to straighten it out, fix it together again, which can be awkward. And on board a small ship like a minesweeper, it can actually be dangerous. So that in that regard, discipline can be very strict. Depends on your own particular circumstance, who you have over you, whether you get no chance yells or that, you know, that sort of thing. Um, discipline is not what you would call strictly rigid, but it can be, if, if it has to be, it can be rigid. But usually discipline is relaxed on board a ship because um, kind of sort of really strict discipline all the time because it just wouldn't work. Be too much friction between the, the lads on board and the, the officers and NCOs. Discipline is seen by naval servicemen as a necessity, not as an end in itself. On board ship, it's quite strong. It uh, has to be. You've got a different breed of man compared to uh, army life because um, ship go on patrol, 19-day patrol, 21-day patrol. Um, we are governed to time, time limits. Ship sailing at certain times, all personnel got to be back on board half an hour before ship sails in um be able to take over all their duties and you find they accept it quite well and they knuckle down to their duties so you don't have really much trouble from the men Are offenders then brought before the captain? Well, usually that would be the method but you try and that would be the very last resort that you would do like really you know you can come along and talk to them explain to them and that and usually most fellas will come around to your way of thinking without having to be brought before the captain. One of the problems the naval service faces is wastage of skilled men. We would like to think that everybody who joins would be happy here and that they would stay on but in common with all services throughout the world uh, people join the services without having a proper idea of what it's all about particularly the younger people uh, today, they are used to much greater freedom. Uh, they dislike any restriction on that freedom. Not that we uh, try to restrict them, but the services by their very nature do impose certain restrictions on them. And so if you have a number will fall by the wayside or prefer to go back to civilian life. It's hard to know. Like, finish out the first four years and see them. Probably leave. Well, this time, I don't really know whether I'm sticking or not at the moment. I've uh, a couple of years to do yet, you know. So, um, I don't know whether I like it or not. But I'll st- st- stick with it. The naval base is surrounded by heavy industry. This has been a factor uh, in, our, uh, in affecting our wastage in that uh, we are in the centre, as you say, a very high development area. And a lot of the new industries coming on steam here have required 
technicians and other uh, types to uh, man their establishments. Uh, we have suffered as a lo uh, losses as a result of this. On the other hand, uh, we accept that uh, our trained men uh, are in demand and we're delighted that they are and that they've found uh, other fruitful employment. And uh, we accept that it is in the national interest that they, this trained personnel should be available to the country. Training, especially for officers, is intensive. Well, I joined as a cadet in 74, October 74. I then went to the Coro for six weeks, basic military training. I went to Dartmouth then, which is the Royal Naval College in Dartmouth, Devon. I trained there for 12 months. Came back here and went to sea for 12 months. Did a pre-commissioning course and was, was commissioned in the rank of, an, of ensign in 76. I then came back to sea for six months before going back to England for a sub-lieutenant's course, which lasted seven months. Three months in Dartmouth, four months in Portsmouth. Then came back here for another six months sea time before sitting for my watchkeeping examinations, which would be the equivalent of a driving licence at sea. You're competent to hold a watch and take charge of a ship at sea. And I've been at sea since then. That's two years ago. Apart from officer training, there are many technicians among the non-commissioned officers and ratings. One of the most important areas is communications. Well, we have uh, the very latest uh, transmitters and receivers, and it, the, we have a maximum output of uh, 1,000 watts at the moment. Uh, we have new equipment which will boost this up again, coming to us very shortly. But uh, we can maintain contact with our ships, uh, no matter where they are, worldwide, no problem. To show how well their communication system works, Chief Telegrapher Brian Cummins called up one of our naval vessels in foreign waters. Well, at the moment uh, we're on the southern coast of Spain heading northwest uh, on our return voyage to Ireland. Uh, we've had a marvellous trip uh, down the Mediterranean, uh, the highlight of which um, was our visit to the Pope last Sunday fortnight in the Vatican. Um, the Irish Embassy uh, in the Vatican uh, arranged this uh, audience for us um, by using the contact they have with Father McGee, who's the Pope's personal secretary. The Pope saw all of our sailors, uh, was introduced to them individually, and he spoke to them individually. He presented them with rosary beads, and then uh, I presented... The naval service nowadays goes far afield and covers many sea miles, and in all its seafaring it has been singularly accident-free. Ironically, the only disaster in all the years happened in Cork Harbour. We refer to it now as the pole control disaster. Uh, the port authority, well, we carried out the duties of port control, our own servicemen, and, uh, Boarding officer and crew manning a lance and any ship coming into the harbour was, well, she hove to and the port control lance went out and inspected her manifest and, well, security primarily, of course, to find out what she was carrying or if she had any doubtful cargo. But on uh, this particular night on the 12th of December 1942, the normal course of duty is that port control and pilot lunch went out to the Irish poplar who was coming into the harbour here. And uh, a hurricane blew up, southeasterly wind, and 
the poplar came into the harbour and anchored down below on the Whitegate roads. Boat launches went alongside, and the weather was so bad that the Irish poplar was inclined to drag anchor, so the captain put the rangers going dead slow ahead. And with the noise of wind and weather and what have you, the launches were alongside, and not knowing the ship was going ahead, they drifted down her side. And with the screw turning slowly, the ship was quite light at the time, and the prop was part out of the water. The blades of the propeller came around and caught both boats and sunk them on the spot. With a major loss of life, of course. But the work of the Navy continues after 40 tenacious years. What of the future? Two senior officers voice their opinions, Captain Wally Maloney and Commodore Thomas McKenna, a former director of the Naval Service. First, Captain Maloney. We in the Naval Service uh, feel that the service has a tremendous lot to offer. Uh, We are happy that we will be able to protect the maritime resources of this country, whether they be fishing or oil rigs, assist in the any search and rescue operations, look after the pollution problems that can arise from time to time and have arisen, that we can uh, help with other uh, areas at sea. We're the only government agency that can be called upon to assist in any uh, operation that might occur at sea. And uh, hydrographic survey, I mean, there are many, many uh, things that can happen at sea. And uh, I think it's true to say that it's only in the last eight or nine years that Irish people have become conscious of uh, the sea around them. And um, because of this, I think there is more interest being paid uh, to the Naval Service. And on that score, I I believe that we will be able to uh, answer any calls that are made on us in the future. For an island, uh, we're the most unmaritime nation in the world. We never think of the sea. As a matter of fact, so many, many times have we turned our back on the sea and the sovereign territorial waters there. Uh, It took a war to make us realise that we had to have a merchant navy. Uh, Way back as far as 1926, the establishment of the state. It was a harbours tribunal set up, hard-headed old businessmen, and they had to express their horror at the lack of interest of the country in anything maritime, even when it hit the pocket. So uh, it's an uphill fight. Now this not applies just to the naval service or to the merchant service. Fishing even comes into it. People don't want to know anything about it. But the riches are there, the jobs are there, the responsibility is there. And the naval service has, if I can put it, a job for life.